0: And tools and burials plants and seeds neanderthals all these things we make no apology are the study of archaeology We don't do dinosaurs
1: You're listening to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, a a critical examination of the world of pseudo-archaeology and the misrepresentation of archaeology in the world today. Each episode, we focus the lens of archaeology on a topic and discuss reality versus fantasy. We've covered everything from ancient aliens to crystal skulls, from DNA to modern fakes. Join us for our discussion this week and get ready to think critically. Digging
0: in a trench, monuments, going to the pub. Hey
1: everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Spend. Fantasies podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I am joined today with my guest, Paulina Prestupa, AP of New Mexico, and the organizer for the SAA panel on Innovative Outreach. Really great panel to sit at if you went to Society for American Archaeology and what was that?
0: Yeah, it was in April. Um, I think our uh, specific date was the 12th of April
1: yeah, it was a great session. Um, I know I came in halfway through because I went to half of everything. Uh, just, it was there was so much going on there just it was impossible to go to everything. but I'm really I was really excited about your guys's panel. Um, specifically because of the way you guys were handling the panel. And so since you organized it, uh, Paulina, can you tell us more about it?
0: Um, So, yeah, um, I organized the archaeology and innovative outreach beyond the lecture panel, um, which was actually one of a couple of different panels that was talking about outreach and archaeology, um, which in, I think, kind of the last couple of years, I think, has become a lot more important, or at least something that I think more archaeologists are paying attention to, um, particularly with the... um, Pluses and minuses of our current political climate, I think outreach is really important. So one of the reasons why I was really interested in organizing this panel was because outreach and particularly kind of innovative outreach, outreach that reaches people who are not, you know, really into kind of museum lectures or necessarily, you know, might not have access to museums easily or might not have the time um, how that, how outreach beyond lectures allows those people to still interact with archaeologists and with archaeology in general. Um, and so I was really interested in um, in bringing a panel about this to the Society for American Archaeology meetings, um, because I think it's something that all archaeologists should pay attention to, but um, particularly if you can kind of see outreach into the minds of early career archaeologists, um, demonstrate that it's an easy thing to do, demonstrate that it's something that's important to do. Um, I think that'll really help to change the field and help to improve some of the discussions we have, as well as kind of allow archaeology to um, really be the stewards of the past that we're meant to be.
1: I really thought it was neat when I came into your session because, like I said, I got there uh, halfway. But it was neat because it was one of the first panel discussions I went to where instead of having my having everybody sit in seats like in rows like a traditional lecture hall kind of setting which most of the the sa panels were kind of set up that way I say most not all um you guys were kind of sitting in like a semicircle or almost a full circle and there was a reason for this that I later found out about at the end of this but it did kind of like on top of you guys discussing uh innovative outreach you were also like reaching out to the audience of the panel and asking to engage the panel at the same time which I thought it was a really great way of kind of driving home. Um but on top of it, you guys were doing special
0: at your, I don't think your life Yeah. Um, so one of the amazing, um, so my panel um was not just myself, but um also Hanna Pago, I believe is her name, um, Emily Van Alst, Daniel Kwan, Dr. Christina Kilgrove, and Katie Ellenberger. And um one of the and Daniel is also a podcaster. Um I had actually met him the previous year at the SAA's in Vancouver to record actually for his podcast. And so he's been kind of expanding the things that his podcast does including vlogs and live streaming. Um, and so he was kind enough to live stream our entire panel over on his Facebook page um, for um, his podcast, Curiosity and Focus, which was really great. And I think that that's something that I have been kind of pushing for, um, if not live streaming, or at least recording, um, even if it's just audio, even if it's kind of not great audio, because I think that one of the reasons why I think archaeology in particular has started feeling less accessible to people, or at least kind of typical archaeology has started to feel less accessible, is because it's really hard to access our information, which is in some cases very good. There are lots of things that we do that are sensitive and that we need to have an ethical um, kind of way of making sure that information doesn't fall into the wrong hands. But there's a lot of stuff that we do in archaeology that is, there's no reason why it shouldn't be public and why it shouldn't be um, kind of available for anyone who is interested in the science to access. And I think that um live streaming was a really great way to do that. It's also a really great way to have a record of the sort of, of the ways of basically of your outreach. Things like podcasts, things like tweets, things like blogs. There are these kind of enduring aspects of academia that are much more approachable for people and are still things that you can access in like in perpetuity. Or at least, you know, so far as we have the digital files available. And I think that that's really important for just kind of, you know, record keeping as far as your thoughts are concerned. Um, also, just for teaching materials. I think it's not uncommon for um, even current archaeology classes to still use videos that are 20 years old that, you know, were recorded onto DVD from a VHS. that You know, they're, they're a Nova special from 1988. But it's like, well, if you could have a live stream, like... SAA session or forum or um, podcast or whatever that has the most up to date archaeological information that you can then use to teach c- incoming students, you're constantly as a teacher keeping fresh with new stuff, you're, you're, you're making students that are going to have a leg up because they're most aware of the newest forms of um, information that's going out there. Yeah, some of it might change, some of it's just preliminary, some of it might be too specific for the public to really understand why it's important. But it's the sort of thing that I think is really important if you're going to kind of be teaching the next generation of archaeologists is um, the idea of um, outreach is important because it, you know, rubs people in. That's how you get people interested in the field.
1: Right, right, right. And you guys, I think, did a really great job of that. And the the people that you selected to be on the panel, uh, uh, you went over everybody's names. Um, but the uh, they're all on Twitter. Yes. They're all Twitter archaeologists. Yep. It's part of the Twitter archaeology hashtag. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I'm, I will link everybody in the show because you should all go follow them. Probably the one that most people will recognize if they're not podcast junkies, like I know a lot of people are. Uh, will be dr christina kilgrove so she writes for forbes so she actually is able to you know we're talking about outreach and i our podcast focuses a lot on like the general public like we're trying to reach out to people who have questions about pseudo-archaeological topics or just archaeology topics in general we don't do a great job of getting our message or our field out there to the public eye um so you know reaching out to the public is really important And Christina Mm -hmm. has this ability to write for Forbes. And so she has a column on the website that gets umpteen million hits. I'd love to have Twitter followers like
0: she does. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, actually, Dr. Kilgrove was not someone that I initially, I was initially kind of intimidated to contact because um, she does, she's a really big player as far as outreaching archaeology is concerned that she's, you know, on this really major platform. Um, I remember seeing her um, turn in like her tenure application or something. And she was like, oh, and here's a stack of all the articles I've written for Forbes. And it was like three reams of paper. And I was yeah. just, I was just blown away. But I was also just kind of like, why aren't there more of us who do that? And I was actually encouraged to contact her, Um, there's another really great archaeologist on Twitter named uh, John Lowe when um, I was initially kind of tossing around this idea of having this panel, he was like you know what, if you want to get kind of people to show up, um, maybe you should contact someone who's you know, kind of a bigger, basically a bigger fish than us, see if they're willing to do it, and so um, I emailed Dr. Kilgrove I think I emailed her I might have, no, I probably emailed her actually because I don't know that her DMs are open because that would probably not be great for her, just for you know, safety sake. But I, I you, you know, can- emailed her just kind of generally, hey, would you be interested? And and she said, yeah, sure, that would be great. Um, as long as it you know fits the requirements of, because uh, the SAA has a limited number of sort of like roles right. you can play at the conference, and so she was like, as yeah. long as I'm one of these roles, I can participate. If you want me to do something else, I can't because I'm already booked up.
1: Yeah, she was at a lot of stuff at the SAA because yeah. I saw her I think in two other panels while I was-
0: Yeah, there, there was a lot,
1: like I said, there was a lot going on at the SAA.
0: Yeah, no, the SAA is is really, um, it's really fantastic, but it's really easy to um, meet a lot of people not remember any of them and also miss a lot of people you do know. So <laughs> Yeah,
1: yeah, I, I I'm not gonna lie, I still have a little people I need to contact and you know, by the time this show goes live, hopefully I will contact it on. But yeah, as we sit right now in the middle of I mean, I still have a little I need to email Yeah. Um, but I I feel like that's kind of par from there. There was like I think the number was seen around the four thousand archaeologists space. Yeah, that is
0: um, absolutely. It's it's great. It can be a really great great place to meet people. Great place to have meetings with you know friends you haven't seen in forever. Um, but it can be a little bit overwhelming as far as sorting out the things that are worth seeing, especially because yeah. I'm really interested in outreach. But one of the my actual dissertation topic is on the archaeology of childhood, and of course the one. The session that was on the archaeology of childhood was scheduled at the exact same time as my panel, Um, and so it's getting kind of unfortunate for people to, you know, I have to be in one session, um, and then I have to sacrifice other sessions that might be really, you know, worthwhile to see.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So there's there's a there's a topic there. You know, the whole concept of the SAAs is so much to. um, Yeah. like, like I was saying, I had to bounce in between sessions several times. I don't think I was, I don't think I got to very a solid session of any yeah. I think I had to like divide my time up like an hour here, an hour there. But, you know, that's us as archaeologists. We go there, we know what to expect. We know we're going to be all over the place. And then, of course, on top of that, you got to add in like, I want this person. I want to talk with this person. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, that's overwhelming for us. And it's almost impossible Who isn't an archaeologist. Like, think about it. Oh, yeah, Exactly. That. On top of like the price, I'm writing it off on my taxes put it that way. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a bit high. Um, yeah, yeah so, no, but that's, um, but I think there's a lot of,
0: go ahead. Oh, um, I think that that's definitely um, one of the reasons why I think live streaming and outreach like this is so important yes. is because there's no way that anyone who has any sort of, you know, little bit of interest um, in archaeology will be able to access this information in any sort of in a reasonable timeline without yeah. talks like this happening on a on a more common scale
1: well and i think that's why things like um like ted talks uh those are so popular god they're so popular mm-hmm. but you know they're they're highly viewed by people outside of this of expert giving the talk so what the the appeal there is is like they make they these videos up on youtube i mean i follow mm-hmm. ted talks on youtube and they're available all the time for anybody to go watch and i feel mm-hmm. like there's a lot of sessions i mean ideally you would want to do all of the sessions but you know some of them are going to be more popular than others but still you know you've got a lot of people who are just kind of casual in archaeology or casual in a topic who would benefit a lot from having a live stream that they can go back and watch of a panel or a session or a talk Mm -hmm. yeah exactly it would really help educate the public a lot and we wouldn't have to deal so much you know to bring it back to the topic of the show. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> wouldn't have to deal so much with misunderstandings in archaeology with pseudo archaeology the public themselves um at their at their time mm-hmm.
0: yeah so- no it's really true it's um and i think that that's something that definitely impacts like how our field is portrayed and understood by the public as well that um this sort of black curtain of archaeology kind of goes up where they're basically you have kind of popular media portrayals or mentions of archaeologists like indiana jones or tomb raider but as far as that translation into what it actually means to be an archaeologist and what archaeology actually does is really limited because of the kind of ways that we've definitely you know we're all we're essentially like academic rapunzel's we're all stuck in our towers some of us because we have to and some of us because um you know we want to it's unfortunate because I think that, yeah, I think that there's a lot that our field can do to counteract um, things like archaeology if we just had more information out there. And it's, it's not like our science isn't interesting. It is. Whenever someone says, whenever someone asks me what I do and I say I'm an archaeologist, they just kind of go, wait, what? And yeah. just kind of there's that kind of shock of like, I could have said any other field that I could have said would have sounded more appropriate or more realistic <laughs> than me saying it. I'm an archaeologist, but it's People um, just don't encounter
1: archaeologists. Very yeah, often.
0: yeah, exactly. Um, And it's it's. It's cool, it's cool to be one. It's great. Uh, I think that there is there are things that we can do as far as putting our information out there that would definitely help to dispel a lot of a lot of the issues that we come up against and would probably just help us, you know, formulate better questions and formulate better relationships with the public. Right. And and I, those
1: relationships with the public are the really important thing. Um you go uh, above and beyond the call of duty when it comes to reaching out to the public and I have dabbled with it, but I'd like to hit on Um, your presence at cons uh, when we get back from the break digging in a trench monuments
0: going to the pub when the we hope you're enjoying spent. this
1: episode please be sure to check out the show notes at www.archyfantasies.com for further information about our hosts guests and topics in but this episode do this podcast is so. listener supported and we appreciate every donation don't either in the time it takes you to rate and share this episode do or monetarily so. on patreon and no kobe you can connect with us on the blog by email, no, or on Twitter. Thanks to all of our supporters. Dinosaurs. And let's get back
0: don't to the show. Hey
1: everyone, and welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. We are still talking with Paulina Prastupa, and we are going to talk about, talking about archaeology at conventions. And we're not talking about the SAAs. We're talking about, well, you're going to Geek Girl Con up in Seattle, aren't you?
0: Yes, I am going to Geek Girl Con. This will be my third Geek Girl Con. Um, and I started. I'm actually very doing- jealous
1: of you, by the way. I haven't oh, been able to, because I really want to go to that convention. Like, I remember when it started, and I was like, oh, I want to go so bad. And I was like, oh, it's like literally the other side of the country.
0: <laughs> yeah no, it's super it's um super fun and i think each year it's gotten um better and a little bit bigger which is great and a little bit scary but yeah no um i love it it's fun <laughs> I.
1: it sounds like a really great convention to go to
0: yeah it's super it's really nice and really relaxing and um which is kind of strange to say of like a convention of that size in comparison to some of the other conventions i've been to in the last few years being big enough Um, to have things to see, but not so big that you feel overwhelmed. And they're really great at catering to, you know, people with different sorts of, you know, if you have a big family that you're coming with or a lot of small children, or um, if you have uh, physical disabilities or are neuroatypical, um, they do a really good job of um, making sure that people have comfortable spaces to be in as far as that's concerned, as well as, um, you know, kind of providing all your kind of geek wants
1: I have noticed that Gen Con's been doing a much better job of that over the last few months. I haven't been able to attend as much as I would like to, but yeah, they've, they've started setting up like quiet spaces. Um, There's a whole bunch of stuff you can do with just the family. Um, They've got a section of stuff that they were calling, uh, they were basically like, but then they realized that women actually like to, so now they just call them like spouse projects, but there are all kinds of crazy things that they do. Yeah. But yeah, so that's really great that they're being a lot more inclusive. And I think Geek Girl Con was designed that way from the start, whereas Gen Con's kind of adding that as they go. So that's that's one of the things that made it such a convention, in my opinion. Um, So you go there and you talk about archaeology to these people. How do you... How, what do you do when you? Do so, that?
0: um, I actually started the previous panels that I've done. They've not been um directly archaeological yet, particularly because I've been trying to kind of grow the people, the network I have, basically, of individuals who I can invite to be on panels um like that. So I started off with a panel at GeekGirlCon on cultural appropriation. It was, yeah, it wow. was a huge topic. It was really well um, well received, very well attended. And I was interested in, because I'm an archaeologist, but because in the United States, at least, archaeology comes from anthropology, issues of cultural appropriation are really important for me to understand, to know, you know, when you're stepping on someone's toes. Um, but also because I'm interested in the ways that archaeology gets portrayed in media as a way that, you know, it's a serious... It's important for us to understand how our, you know, how our field is portrayed in the media in order to understand how people perceive us kind of generally. So I watch out for things like cultural appropriation and and that sort of But before we go any further, can you
1: describe what cultural appropriation is cuz some of our listeners may not completely understand what that is? Um so just put on your educator's cap real quick.
0: Um cultural appropriation is actually it's kind of hard to nail down a specific definition but it has a lot it has to do with kind with using the aesthetics of a culture that is not your own in a way that is oftentimes inappropriate for the aesthetics you might be using it for this can be things like um the wearing the biggest and most common issue in the United States at least um is the use of Native American like chiefs war headdresses or um Uh, War bonnet as a basically just a fashion symbol um, when they have really they have a completely different and very sacred and important place in the cultures that use that imagery and they have particular meanings that are associated with them. And cultural appropriation can happen in any field. It happens in music, for example. It's not uncommon to um, have people talk about, um, for example, white rappers in hip hop. Some people feel that it's basically white rappers and people who are non-black individuals who use who who rap basically are appropriating black culture. And so there's a there's a kind of sliding scale, which was one of the reasons why I was interested in having the panel. Um, But I was particularly interested in looking at um, the ways in which people can problematically borrow from other cultures. So one of the things with cultural appropriation is this idea of borrowing without knowledge. Mhm. There are lots of things that exist in our in America that we've kind of taken from our cultures and we're not necessarily aware of the ways in which or we're not necessarily aware of what that thing actually came from. Um and sometimes it's okay. There are certain things like, you know, No one's going to get upset if your college student is eating ramen, even though that's, you know, very much a a Japanese and East Asian oriented food. But there are other things such as utilizing spiritual headdresses or um, spiritual garb or things like geisha dress, which is very much specifically associated with Japanese culture and has a particular meaning and association with a particular job type and which has a particular place in Japanese society that when you just draw or when you just grab the aesthetics from it without the meaning that all of those aesthetics have you can really harm the community that you're borrowing from.
1: Yeah we encounter that a lot when we're dealing with uh, pseudo-archaeology so Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting that you bring this up well it's good that you bring this up Because a lot of pseudo-archaeology actually does this. They borrow a little bit from here and a little bit from there. Mm -hmm. And then they kind of try to... They're trying to make connections across cultures where there aren't connections. Yeah. But because they see a similarity and because they feel... It's almost as if they feel like they have the right to kind of take these pieces and put them together to create... Or reinterpret uh, history, or mythology, or an oral tradition, or yeah. or, or any of that. Yeah, no, um, exactly.
0: It's,
1: yeah, it's the same concept happening here. It's the same idea of appropriation. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly. It's it's it's. I think that's definitely something that comes up in the pseudo arc that I I've seen, um, and I think it has a lot to do with. Um, Kind of entitlement to certain cultural things. This unfortunately, his like long-term historical thing, where in many cases, kind of Western nations like the U.S. and France and England thought that they were the only custodians of cultural heritage anywhere. Because right, historically, yeah, yeah, and so and that and cultural appropriation yeah, it kind of comes from that. Um, that sort of entitlements to other cultures, even though. There's a reason why um, Western nations should necessarily be entitled to those objects any more than the nations that those objects were found in.
1: Right. And you're talking about like, I mean, you're talking modern as well, but you're, you're speaking historically. Like when we're talking about the formation of the Smithsonian and the excavations uh, into uh, the Holy Land in Egypt that were funded. Um, England was notorious mm-hmm. for this back in the Victorian era because Job's not here to say it. Um, so we can blame the Victorians for this. <laughs> And just, you know, like, going into these areas, finding as many cool artifacts, just the cool stuff. Yeah, exactly. Dragging them back to the museums and setting it up to be like, we are the greatest empire because not only do we have our own culture, but now we have this culture too. Yeah,
0: Yeah. exactly. It's like, why is the Washington Monument an obelisk? (laughs) Um, Why is the
1: Washington Monument an obelisk? Do you really want me to go into why the Washington Monument is an obelisk as far as <laughs> the pseudo archaeology world is concerned. Because no. we'll be here for an yeah, hour. Yeah, no,
0: but it's a it's a really great example of the ways in which kind of basic elements um like very Commonplace imagery in the United States is essentially um, an element like, it, you know, there's a sliding scale of how offensive it is or who it's offending or who it's hurting. Um, but there are lots of things that are in American culture ap- appropriative. They're taking on someone else's aesthetics without understanding the underlying meaning or what those aesthetics, how those aesthetics are important to the culture that created them. Yeah, and so my first couple of panels centered on this idea, um, because for me, I thought it was as an anthropologist um, and an archaeologist, it's really, I think that in the fiction that I have liked the most, or the fiction that has spoken most to me, um, as someone um, who comes from a mixed cultural background, um, and also as an archaeologist, has been the works that have taken the time to really think about where cultural meaning in its symbols in its kind of liter in its you know f- you know fictional literature but also in material culture people who have thought about that heritage of things that idea that Everything comes from something um, has been the most interesting for me, and so I started there um, because I was interested in in having this discussion on a on a bigger stage because I know that there are probably a lot of creators out there, you know, lay people who find other cultures interesting or want to make sure that they do a good job portraying other cultures um in their you know language and dress but you know also their material culture but they want but they're not necessarily armed with tools to do it well yet they are still learning how to research or how to approach people um or how to take criticisms well and so i wanted right. to have um that panel and i assembled um i've done That panel twice now with two different groups of people. The first one was at Geek Girl Con with Carrie McLean from Black Nerd Problems. Leah Weathington, who writes The Legend of Bold Riley. Tristan J. Tarwater, um, who wrote Hen and Chick, Carla Pacheco, who's written a variety of things, including a really great um, short about the Punisher. And then I ran it again at Rose City Comic Con with Marissa Louis, who's a colorist, comics colorist, uh, Yoshi Yoshitani, who is a, uh, a really fantastic artist, and um, once again with Tristan Tarwater. And I wanted to start these sort of cultural conversations to provide a kind of service to creative communities who are interested in learning about kind of imagining the diverse world we actually have and using it to its best ability to help construct realistic interesting and fictional worlds that were as diverse as the things we actually live in as the world that we actually live in so it's basically uh you're describing world building yeah yeah basically yeah world building and ways to do you know sort of world building well and i've kind of Expand expanded some of the topics that um, I'm interested in in bringing to conventions at Emerald City. I um, moderated two. One was on there was a hashtag going around last September called #ExpressiveAsians, <laughs> which was it came in response to um, there had been a lot of talk around in la- and particularly 2017 um, and a little bit of 2016 with basically whitewashing of Asian American characters or Asian characters in general, things like Ghost in the Shell. Um, And basically there was a really uninformed casting director who had said something along the lines of Asians are hard to cast because they're not expressive enough or not. They don't emote enough or something like that. And basically Asian, Asian Twitter and Asian American Twitter and Asian descent Twitter was like, what the heck are you talking about? So I brought together a bunch of. Asian and Asian descent creators to talk about like, we're here, we're expressive. These are the things we're doing. This is how you can help promote and make sure to dispel those myths. I also moderate, um, I also moderated a panel called why is the future so white? Um, talking about how to basically bring those cultural that I've been talking about into kind of science fiction that is based in the future. Because so oftentimes um, we'll have a future that's depicted to us, and it's nice and clean and modern and surprisingly filled with only Caucasian descent individuals. Well, I think there's a really interesting tie-in with that last panel that you were talking about. Mm-hmm.
1: with Again, bringing it back to like the pseudo-archaeology thing, because... You can kind of say ask the same question about pseudo-archaeology prehistory. Yeah, like, yep, exactly. Why is it so white? And it's you know the the whole concept of the the great culture bringer or the um, the transatlantic yeah exactly transoceanic travelers. They're usually there's a big push to describe them as white or pale skinned. Like I've seen them pass that one off as if it's not just saying it's white. I mean, you're still saying they're white people. Yeah, um, but there's that whole concept that all culture comes from this enlightened mm-hmm. white race that was then wiped out. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of an interesting parallel that to see the, the mm-hmm. sci-fi world. Now I don't read a ton of sci-fi, but the sci-fi I do read, I am very fortunate in has a very diverse cast most of the time. And I find that much more enjoyable than weird utopic worlds that are very pale.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's, um it's just a, for me it's kind of like we know the past or anyone who's studied archaeology or history in a serious way knows that our past was diverse our present is diverse our future will be just as diverse and so yeah and I think that that is definitely something that I find because of my um, archaeological training and anthropological and history training Uh uh, knowing that knowing how cool and Interesting and kind of different our past was makes me definitely very skeptical of whenever um, you have pseudo archaeological claims, such as like the kind of the white culture that was all abandoned or destroyed or whatever. They're the, ex- it's the exact same rhetoric right. that we had as far as explaining, yeah. you know, kind of complex cultures in the United States. The mound builder stuff comes directly from that history or from that kind of intellectual legacy. And then it's also it's something that right, if we don't dispel it now is going to continue to be part of the kind of pseudo arc narrative. And it's one of those it's one of those things where you talk about and you've probably talked about this on the podcast before, but things like ancient aliens oh, yeah. really undermines what. For me, when I think about that stuff and one of the things that I've been kind of slowly getting to um, with these panels um, has been this idea of celebrating the successes of humans. Right. Like there, there's a really big push, it seems, in a lot of these pseudo-archaeological things to kind of discount the fact that humans are amazing. Right, yes. That we are comics thinkers that are able to... Er- um create fantastic technologies fantastic art pieces fantastic buildings without modern methods or in di- in completely different ways in in different ways of formulating your thoughts or different ways of understanding the world um and for me it's just kind of like why do those narratives want to kind of narrow our thinking and also why do those narratives want to kind of make us less interesting than we are
1: um, i yeah i completely agree like this whole idea of having aliens come and basically solve all the problems or give all of the... And it's not just aliens. It can also be like the Atlanteans or um, there's a new one that I'm looking into. Uh, it's just like, the, the, what is it? The the followers, the children of the sun or the followers of the sun. But it's the, that whole idea that someone somewhere came and gave us everything because we were apparently too dumb to figure it out. And it's just like... yeah. Dudes, we built this shit, okay?
0: Yeah, and just—it just seems kind of funny. It is, and
1: I'm like I'm like you, I like I don't like people dismissing how inventive and adaptable the human race is because alien sounds cool, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly, and I think that um, some of that. It's something that I'd like to talk about in some of the upcoming panels that I have planned. So for Geek Girl Con, I've submitted um, a couple of different panels that hopefully by the end of this week, I'll um, hopefully have good news about. Two of them are more focused on on kind of archaeology and um, particularly museums. Nice. Um, and then I'm also um, going to be hopefully on a panel that's going to talk about fi- science fiction versus science fact and talk about um, the importance of having... Not necessarily, I don't necessarily think that you need to always have accurate science in fictional works, but I think that there is something to be said to making sure that the science you're portraying in your fictional work isn't outdated and isn't holding up racist narratives, particularly if you're going to be using anthropology or archaeology. Right. Um, and where Google can solve or answer your question to make your science thing accurate, doing that. <laughs> Did you just advocate
1: the University of Google?
0: <laughs> no. Well, it <laughs> it was um so I wrote an article for Women Write About Comics on um the Avengers and um they're having this really this new um Avengers Avengers of 2 billion BC or a, of 1 million BC which as a concept sounds super fun and then you're like wait a second 1 million years ago we don't have homo sapiens. Right.
1: That's why they're the Avengers.
0: And, yeah, but then that completely just like it made me go none of this works
1: yeah at all
0: like it just made me a little sad that is a little weird yeah so that's so those are sorts of the um the upcoming threads i'm interested in um pursuing in upcoming panels as well as the other one is on it's called it belongs in a museum um talking about kind of the ins and outs the fact fiction of what it's like to work in a museum oh that'll be fun uh let's go to break real quick and when we come back um
1: I'd still like to keep talking about using geekery and this kind of stuff to reach out and then Yeah, so let's let's keep up on that topic.
0: Digging in a trench monuments going to the pub when the We day hope is you're enjoying spent.
1: this episode. Please be sure to check out the show notes Funny, at www.archiefantasies.com for further information about our hosts guests and topics in this episode this podcast is listener supported and we appreciate every donation either in the time it takes you to rate and share this episode or monetarily on patreon and kobe you can connect with us on the blog by email or on twitter thanks to all of our supporters and let's get back to the show
0: dinosaurs raise your trials as one will call no we don't do dinosaurs
1: Everyone, and welcome back to the show. Uh, we are still talking with Paulina Prestupa, and we are talking about, we're still talking about conventions and talking about archaeology at geek conventions. So like comic conventions, gaming conventions, um, Geek Grow kind of a catch-all convention, right? It's kind of like yeah, Dragon it Con, is. only smaller.
0: Yeah. And it's actually a lot, a lot more of the cons are becoming more um, open to different things. So like Emerald City has like movie stars, comics, artists, gaming platforms, video game stuff. It's, um, they're really, oh my God, video games.
1: It's just like, like, oh my God, video games are everywhere these days.
0: Oh yeah, no. Yeah, exactly. That's, um, yeah. But yeah, no, they're, they're just really, really kind of growing and they're really a great way to talk to the public about things in science in general, but um, can be really important for archaeology specifically, because I think that a lot of the world building that goes into creating these places, archaeology can help because we know a lot about the past. And that can really help inspire people to create better worlds, more accurate ro- worlds, and more, you know, more believable worlds and just more honest ones. Yeah. So the other panel I had mentioned at the end of our previous segment, It Belongs in a Museum, is going to be a really, uh, I hope it gets picked up by Khan. And I'm really excited about um, because I'm bringing together multiple museum um, museum folks. So folks who are local to the kind of Pacific Northwest area, from the um, Northwest African American Museum, nice, the Burke Museum, and I think a Tall Ships Museum in Oregon. And then one of the and myself as a kind of moderator and panelist. But the last person that we're bringing on was someone who used to be an archaeologist, actually. So they're basically kind of my twin in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> but her background is in historical arche. Name is uh, Maris Malali, and she I had met her at Emerald City this in March. She was actually on the Breaking the Bamboo Ceiling panel, which was a kind of compliment to my Expressive Asians panel. Um, But as I said, we're kind of twins in that way. And her background was in historical archaeology, and she's actually using her historical archaeology in an upcoming job to work for Wizards of the Coast, doing character, nice, doing character design, world building for this you know really amazing, well known, established creative you know platform fantastic it, it's just it's just fantastic and so um the the kind of running title is it belongs in a museum but we're really interested in talking about kind of how museums are portrayed in fiction so if you are in a video game and you walk into a museum what does a museum actually look like on the inside? Are you portraying an 18th century or a 19th century museum, or are you portraying a modern museum? Because I think that a lot of the imagery we have in when we think of stock museum is not actually what a lot of modern, um, you know, kind of, historical museums or um, um, natural history museums or archaeology museums actually look like anymore. Yeah, that whole like idea that there's an object
1: on a pedestal with a placard and then there's another object on another pedestal with a placard. And
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. I, modern museums
1: are not just the hands-on stuff. Like uh, There's bigger and better and more interactive... I mean, it's like going into a video game. Some of these places.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's um, it's just much more diverse and much more vibrant than I think it's come across. Um, and I think also, um, they're talking about museums is a really great way to talk about kind of a variety of different sciences as well as culture and also specifically kind of archaeology and some of the pseudo arc stuff that we've been talking about in the past because it's through those portrayals of things like museums as well as the cultures that might be you know inhabiting these fictional museums. Um, that kind of get filtered into people's minds and can be right. important for dispelling things like um pseudo archaeological and it really kind of came from a couple articles i read and after watching um Black panther actually um there's a really important scene in the film where killmonger who turns who turns out to be the villain oh my god spoilers but yeah, yes go ahead um but yeah, anyways um <laughs> he, like he goes into a museum and he has this really great monologue about like how do you think this got to be here and that's a question that is an ongoing kind of ethical discussion in museums, particularly in the United States, in a lot of Western nations in general, um, and is something that real museum problem that or or um, real ongoing museum discussion that we're going to kind of tackle. But it's also, I think, an important thing for the public to be aware of because it makes you think about kind of who who own not to say who owns the past, um, but who's kind of. Who has the right to possess objects to talk about the past? Um, but also whose narrative are we supporting in these museums? Um, and whose narrative you're supporting when you create a fictional museum? Are you, through no necessary fault of your own, but just because you haven't been exposed to it, accidentally supporting or per Perpetuating a racist notion of the past because you're portraying um, kind of an old style museum or you are using outdated anthropological information or an outdated way of understanding what a museum's place is or how people get jobs in museums. So let me ask you a few questions
1: about your panel that you have had because Mm -hmm. I... I give talks when I go to Gen Con, um, but I, I specifically focus on pseudo archaeological topics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have, I have my own experience and I'd like to hear yours. How are your panels received? Because I know when I give one at Gen Con, it usually sells out pretty fast. And others that sell out, I'll usually fill the room about two thirds of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, cause there's always people who just don't show up and I yeah. don't know who you are and you just wasted a ticket. Um, but, You know, I I enjoy doing these things at Gen Con because I get a surprisingly well-informed audience almost every time. And the conversations that come up, I almost, like this last time that I gave one, I I really didn't lecture too much. Like I didn't really talk just myself too much because the audience would ask and interact with the questions in the Q&A session so well. It was almost worth having one-on-one interaction with the audience uh more than it would have been for me to just stand there and give a slideshow you do like a panel style talk so you have multiple people up there at the front so i think the one-on-one give and take isn't nearly as easy for you but how well attended and how well received are the panels that you have given so far
0: um so the cultural appropriation panels have been really well attended um uh, at Geek Girl Con we had to turn at the first Geek Girl Con one we had to turn people away nice. um at the door which was crazy um at Rose City we were pretty full actually um I, not quite standing room but um but pretty fuller than I thought we were going to be um Emerald City was not quite as well attended as um as previous ones um, I also, I, pardon me, I've completely forgot about this, but I, um, also moderated a panel on being mixed race in, um, and writing mixed race characters, um, which also kind of comes down to cultural appropriation and, and, and cultural topics in general, um, and um, they are pretty well-received. I think that um, I get um, really good questions afterwards. I think it starts um, because i focused a lot on having creators on my panels. Um, It's gotten them to meet new people that they um, want to eventually collaborate with, um, as well as think about the ways that they can improve their own work. Um, And we've really gotten some really great questions from the audience. I think that I've kind of stuck to... um, stuck to having my panelists talk, um, because I think that, particularly with things like cultural appropriation, um, it's really easy to unfortunately devolve into variations of the question, how can I not be accused of being culturally appropriative? Yeah, And that's something that I want to avoid because essentially one of the things that I've gotten to after having this panel a couple of times is, if you're accused of cultural appropriation, it doesn't matter how well you're researched or if you're from that nation or um or if you're from that place but you don't present as being from that place, um, it means it regardless of whether or not the person's feelings are, you know, rooted in, you know, an absolute quote unquote objective fact. Um, it's clear that something happened in your work to make someone feel uncomfortable or offended, I'm going to hurt them. And it's important to basically be aware that you will, if you're, you know, particularly if you're not from that culture, you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. And that's okay. As long as you own up to when you do make those mistakes, being armed with as much research as possible to justify, to not justify your actions, but to show that you cared about those choices that you made. And so I think that the reasons we haven't had too many questions is because I want to make sure that people understand those points, that, you know, if you're going to do this, you need to do your homework and not doing your homework has actual impacts on people in the same way that it does when you talk about pseudo-arc or getting archaeology wrong or getting any science wrong is that it can have, and I think particularly when you're talking about sociological sciences, historical sciences, like archaeology, apology. when you get stuff wrong in that case, you can be saying some really terrible things, actually. The implications of what you're saying if you get things wrong are much bigger than I think people realize. The questions have been have been really great. And I've had some really um, positive ones. I haven't had any like people of a certain age or person or particular gender persuasion kind of go you're wrong on microphone or talk for another 15 minutes, um, which has been really great. I've been very thankful for that. But I think that my my goal is to bring professionals to public, yeah. have those professionals talk about their craft. or um, a particular topic, Um, let kind of people interact a little bit in order to get more kind of, I think about it sometimes as like, I'm bringing the 101 version of this topic to the public. The questions are kind of like a 102.
1: Yeah. And that's really important, you know, to, uh, it's important for us as professionals to make ourselves available to the public. Um, You know, I say that. And obviously, there's a point where we as professionals have to kind of step back sometimes because either the conversation is not working out or it's obviously a trap or that kind of thing um but you know you kind of learn to identify those things Mm -hmm. but it's important in general for us to be available to the public who have just in general questions Mm -hmm. um, like you're doing with your museum panel i really hope that does get picked up uh, because it sounds really interesting and it's fantastic to have a bunch of museum geeks at a geek con to be asked questions about these things um and yeah, I I, uh, I was trying to make a parallel between the, not a parallel, I was trying to make a comparison between the uh, audiences that you're having at these conventions and average audience, the average person who is part of the audience for uh, pseudo-archaeology. Um, I, I, I'm seeing a very distinct divide there actually between people who are coming to mm. the panels who are you know, um, open-minded, accepting, wanting to learn. I mean, yeah, they're asking the question of how can I not be a jerk, but at least they're asking the question <laughs> yeah. um, as opposed to just being like, eh, screw it. And like, I feel like there's a certain, there's a certain audience that's going to come to the conventions, uh, in general, especially something like Geek Girl Con. And that's not the same audience that is consuming, um, so archaeology topics, uh, shows that are on History Network and like Ancient Aliens and that, those are two different groups. And so, yeah, yeah. you do get a lot of feedback, a lot of kickback from the average, um, I want to say believer, not necessarily viewer, because I know there's a lot of people who watch Ancient Aliens and they think it's funny. And it is, but it's one of those funny kind of jokes that actually is more harmful than entertaining. And... Yeah, and then you have the people who, like, believe it. And those are the people that are usually negatively responding to this kind of stuff. They don't see themselves as participating in a racist narrative. They don't see themselves as uh, doing cultural appropriation. Um, They see themselves as, like, mystery solvers and adventurers and the true Indiana Joneses of the world. Um, Where I don't think you're having that... I don't think you're having that interaction um, at a convention because I don't have that interaction at a convention. Yeah. Um, I did have one lady who got a little irritated with me when I was dismissing Atlantis. Um, but, you know, she's still having to listen to the whole conversation. So I hope she yeah. got something out of it. But she was yeah. clearly not happy with my conclusions mm-hmm. uh, about Atlantis not being a real place.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that that's definitely one, one drawback, I would say, as much as I really love presenting at geek panels like that is that this is all a self-selecting crowd and so you're not going to get people who don't like unless they're particularly there to troll you like um so for example um uh anita Sarkeesian, who's on feminist frequency the starter of feminist frequency um she's regularly at geek girl con um and at other but at other conventions she's basically had to say like someone who is verbally like threatened me and abused me sitting in the front row. And that's why I need to continue talking about this. It- I think that because we're kind of, or at least because I'm talking about sort of stuff that's not quite immediately spotlight stuff, I've thankfully been able to avoid a lot of possibly humbler negative interact with people. Um, but I think that that's one thing that as anyone who's doing scientific, particularly scientific outreach, particularly if you're doing scientific outreach as a woman, if you're doing scientific outreach as a woman of color or as a queer woman, it's in our public about all of those things. I think it's something that you kind of have to prepare for.
1: Yeah, and I think
0: that particularly if you're doing outreach on social media, something that you'll just have to be ready to either choose to try and have a conversation with people about, or just hit the block button. And that's fine, too. That is.
1: I've not had to block many people because unfortunately, unfor- or unfortunately, it's not readily apparent my actual gender. Uh, mm mm-hmm online and i don't really know why that is and i'm not going to do anything to run him because that's how i talk and people just have to deal with it but Mm -hmm. i don't get a lot of harassment that i do see my very openly uh feminine counterparts um and i wish them all the best of luck because i know that crap can be terrifying and horrible and if you're one of those people knock it off but yeah it's like you are saying, if you choose to go out and, and be open about this kind of stuff, you're going to get a lot of kickback regardless of, of your gender or your presentation, because people don't want to be told that they're wrong. Yeah. And that's all they hear. They don't for why this idea maybe isn't the greatest idea. They don't even hear you trying to like gently persuade them towards the proper idea or, you know, like the actual truth. Um, they just hear you pointing a finger at them and saying you're wrong or you're doing it wrong or you're being wrong. And people really don't like hearing that. Uh, And that's where you get a lot of the negative feedback from. Yeah, honestly, don't know how to solve that problem.
0: Yeah, I don't think there there is. Um, I think that it's very important to kind of, you know, protect yourself, um, be honest about your opinions, be honest about where your information is coming from, and to have, if you're going to be um, interacting online and doing in a kind of outreach that way, um, having a community who is there that you can talk with about this, about those sorts of things, and also who will kind of get your back if you're going to be doing, um, doing outreach on Twitter or Instagram or any other platform. Um, I'm hoping to start. I'm saying I was going to start this for a month now, but I'm going to start <laughs> streaming on Twitch, playing through basically the end of the second Tomb Raider game in preparation for the next one and just kind of commenting on how the archaeology goes. Um, And there's actually a really great website called The Archaeology of Tomb Raider. It's
1: an excellent site and an excellent Twitter.
0: And yeah, it has an excellent Twitter. And just kind of, you know, being an archaeologist woman who's streaming on Twitch, which I know is, you know, streaming on Twitch is a dangerous thing sometimes. But I think having your community, being honest about your opinions and holding firm, using your block button, block features generously having moderators um are all really great ways to make sure that you know the real science and the real issues are getting out there but also protecting yourself we're not or at least not everyone is getting paid for the outreach that they do so if you're able to pay um, pay people to support um things like you know our uh, a fantastic podcast like this or the individuals Aww, who, yeah, or the individuals who create podcasts like this individually through, you know, PayPal or Patreon or, um, Ko-fi- coffee, coffee, coffee. Yeah. Uh, buy people coffees. It's a really great way to, you know, uh, if you're a consumer help supporting, um, these people who are doing good work and also just to, to show that they're not alone and also to, you know, help bail them out. If you're just someone, someone who's on Twitter and, and cares about this sort of stuff, you know, just have people's backs. And make sure that if you're creating this content, that there are other people out there who know you're out there who can help, you know, keep you safe, too. Well, I know that we're close to
1: time, but you had mentioned uh, that you wanted to talk about Instagram. And so I want to give you, you know, a couple few minutes to kind of talk about that as an outreach tool. Um, I have an Instagram. I struggle with it, uh, using it for Archie fantasies because I just honestly am not positive how I can use it in junction with the podcast and the blog. Um, but you sound like you have some ideas on that. Yeah.
0: Um, so Instagram is something that we talked a little bit about at the, um, innovative archeology, um, panel and actually something that I would have liked to talk a little bit more about, um, because it was an interesting, I, when I was putting together this, um, with the panel at the beginning, I was, um, wanting to basically kind of basically get a representative for each, um, Social media platform. So I was like, I want a Twitter person. I want a blogger. I want a podcaster. I want someone who streams on Twitch, which we did not get. um, Someone who's on Instagram. And then I was like, I think that's like all the things. Tumblr, like, tum- yeah, yeah. Okay. I wanted someone who did a, who, who tumbled did, did, um, which I don't. Yeah, do. I got n- I got nothing for Tumblr. Yeah, Tumblr man. was hard. I- um, but I was like, because like Instagram is like wherever a lot of people are. People have Instagrams for basically everything, and like a lot of friends who I used to connect with a lot on Facebook are now on Instagram exclusively. Not as many. Yeah. people use Twitter as I would like. Um, but I like <laughs> I like uh, the people I've met on Twitter are great. Um, but I think Instagram is really. I was surprised by how few archaeology-related Instagrams there were, Um, and Emily Van Alst was the person I found who uses, um, uh, she's also known as Emily Van Awesome on Twitter and Instagram, um, and Daniel Kwan of Curiosity and Focus is also on Instagram. Um, but I was surprised by how few archaeologists actually utilized it and it kind of sparked a couple of different discussions with some archaeologists on Twitter about the use of it. Cause we're all kind of struggling with this balance between um facts are really cool, but individual awesome like gold artifacts at every like time I've done an excavation in public where someone can see me, I've gotten the question, Are you looking for gold? Oh, and my God. it's not what we're if looking for. If you excavate for.
1: in Jersey if you excavate in New Jersey, they will ask you if you found Hoffa. That's like they're... Oh, yeah. They're not looking for dinosaurs, they're looking for Hoffa. Yeah.
0: Um, but it's just one of those things that's like, are you looking for gold? I'm like, no, I'm looking for stuff that's like not quite as, not as interesting as gold. But, um ways that we can utilize instagram because it's cool visuals are great we talk in memes like i think we had like a like i was interacting with a bunch of different archaeologists on twitter and we were just sharing memes back and forth but like how we can utilize the fact that the images without fetishizing artifacts has been right. a balance because like we're not all trying to swap out the like golden idol for a bag of sand or um or like all in our like bullwhips, having bullwhips in our bowler, not bowler has fedoras, um, or like running around dual wielding pistols or whatever. But images and charts and maps are integral to archaeology. Like we communicate visually in so many different ways. And I think that that's something that I think we can do with Instagram, but hasn't quite caught on. Um, like ways that we can um, show what archaeologists actually do, sharing photos, even if they've got goofy filters, but also kind of use that as a way to talk about more things than just, hey, this artifact looks cool, or, hey, look, I've got sunscreen on, but I've been kind of kind of trying to figure out what that what that is, and I think that it probably has to do with integrating um, photos of who is doing archaeology, showing that it's a lot a lot of women do archaeology, and it's not just because they like to dig up the past, um, which is a reference to a terrible meme that too many women archaeologists have received from well-meaning people. Uh, that you know, women, are they though? Are they? I, well, so in my case, in in cases where I the in the case where I received that meme. One was just like, "Hey, look, it's an archaeology meme," and I'm like, "Ah, oh, this is really sexist." <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that um, I think that the way to show cool artifacts, especially you know artifacts that you know aren't harming community. so not showing someone's like sacred object in a really blithe, right? World, um, but showing or human remains like, these are the sorts of things that we find. Archaeology magazine or human remains, or yeah, human remains, or like sacred sites or places where you're not supposed to be um but showing like hey this is what we found um but also contextualizing it and then now this is what we can say about these people so you know okay it's cool it's awesome you found an arrowhead but what's cool about that is you know the material type that it is um where you found it in relation to other stuff like showing like hey this is the arrowhead i found i found it in this sort of and also tell it in a narrative that doesn't fetishize the object or make it so like hey everybody should go loot places and this is where i right. found this lootable artifact um but making right. but situating objects and the things that we do in the context of telling the story of the past
1: right and that's the important part yeah and
0: that that's the important part and that um that's what archaeologists actually do um and cuz the things that strike people are not just the kind of cold, hard fact. Um, the, oh yeah, there are 10 sources of obsidian in this area. And now after looking at the chemical, like underpinnings of this obsidian artifact, we can narrow it down to one. It's the story of someone going and finding their material, um, culture or a, a place, um, doing something interesting there, making their technology, and then like physically having that object with them and taking it to another place. Those are stories that will get people interested in archaeology as a science, get people interested in telling the real story of archaeology, um, and also make it feel not like something that happened way back when in a in a before time sort of thing but actually um that happened it's a thing that happened to a person that you can identify with um that has some bearing on the lives that we live now um and kind of makes it more personal without um objectifying it
1: well on instagram i mean i do i have a personal instagram and i I enjoy using it um to communicate with my friends and stuff uh i think i think maybe the best way to I think what what I'm trying to do with my uh, Archie Fantasies Instagram is trying to find that same conversational tone Mm -hmm. that I have with my personal Instagram and bring that uh, to archaeology. Like, again, bringing the professional into the forefront. It's like, and I think we actually talked about this a little bit in the panel that you guys had was, um, especially with the Twitter, like, how do I get outside of my bubble? Like, we talk about the archaeology Twitter. It's great when I want to talk to other archaeologists, which I enjoy doing. Um, But there's, there comes a point, especially with the freaking algorithm, mm-hmm. Um, there comes a point where you're just kind of interacting with the same 10 people over and over and over again. And, you know, I do outreach, I want to reach people who are not archaeologists. Mm-hmm. And I think I do a fairly good job of that, using hashtags, but Instagram is even better because it's picture driven. Mm-hmm. So you can have really great images. But at the same time, it's not great for conversation.
0: Yeah. That's very true. I think that, yeah, that's something that's definitely a downside of Instagram. And I think that that was something that we we talked about a little bit in the panel. And I think that was a really important thing with all of this. Outreach is how do you know that it's getting to people who aren't already in the know, um, right? And I think that um, one of the way, one of the other things that I found has been very valuable as far as m- feeling like my outreach m- reaches outside of archaeology has been, you know, bringing them to panels, having those kind of creative types also follow me and kind of making that cross pollination between scientists and creatives having connections like that following people um uh Hannah was really great she mentioned that because she follows a lot of biologists who then kind of unabashedly follow back and following across our our interest lines that you can reach a larger audience that way. Um leveraging people's kind of everyone, you know, we, we live in a gig economy for better or worse. So reaching out to those other gigs that you have on your sideline. Um, but also basic things like I've had a couple of people be like kind of on Facebook or whatever, be like, hey, what are these podcasts I should listen to? And I'm like, here's some archaeology podcasts. You're not an archaeologist, yeah. but you might still find archaeology podcasts interesting or like, hey, I haven't read a book in a while. What's a great great book and i'm like hey you know what why don't you try this um sort of more pub you know more pop science book but it's still archaeology or it's still anthropology or it's still xyz sort of you know high horse i'm trying to plug or what are great instagrams (laughs) to follow or whatever the thing is is making sure that you're not just recommending archaeological things to archaeologists but recommending archaeological things to non-archaeologists um to people like friends and family um, you know, I'm bringing a lot of my archaeological knowledge and bringing the archaeologists I know to things like women write about comics, um, and their associated website. Um, because it's like, yeah, we're here. We also do this media stuff. Um, and if we can get those people to also hear about our, you know, little archaeology tirades or mountains or whatever, um, they're going to be more. Invested in the field in general, um, and they might share whatever we've created with ten people, who share it with ten more people, who share it with ten more people. Um, which is kind of uh, something that Daniel brought up at the end of our um, outreach session was um, instead of saying "Hey, follow me," say "Hey, listen to this podcast and tell ten friends."
1: Right. That the amplifying each other. Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: amplifying one yeah. another, um, and making sure that you're amplifying one another outside of the chamber.
1: Right. Because yeah, I mean, like I was saying, it's it's great to be on Twitter. And it's great to talk to professionals. And I mean, that's how I've met pretty much everybody I've interviewed last year. Um, but I also want people to get to my Twitter and see it as a resource and i want them to use my twitter to get to my blog and use that as a resource and of course the podcast um but polina thank you very much for coming on to the show this has been fantastic there's god there's so much more i want to talk about because i just love archaeology and geekery and how all the crap goes together and the pseudoscience
0: that gets in there and i mean i love
1: that stuff um but thank you for coming on here and talking about the panel that you did at the saas and the (laughs) conventions that you go to
0: No problem. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated um, being on here and get to chat about it. And um, it was really great.
1: Extrapolating
0: from a single stone the extent of a whole complex and then publishing it. If you'd like to support the podcast,
1: consider the donating work to work us on Patreon or Ko fi. Either option helps us out. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast smile. on the blog, www.archyfantasies.com, and like and share us wherever you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at Archie or you can reach us by email, at archiefantasiesgmail.com. That's A R C H Y fantasies at gmail.com theme music was provided no, by archaeo productions dinosaurs. this episode was produced and edited no, we don't by sarah head
0: dinosaurs. No, we don't, do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs see are you happy do you get it now do you get it honestly